0: Welcome to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I am at part two of a two-part series that I am doing on legalism. If you have not read the first article or listened to that podcast, I would encourage you to go and do that. It will be important, as legalism is a complicated problem that we all struggle with. It is a part of our Adamic makeup, and also, depending on how you were reared and the shaping influences in your life, you may have had a double or triple whammy when it comes to legalism. That first article and podcast is titled, Legalism is a Fear-Based Culture?, that leads to a complex life. And I ended that podcast and that article abruptly because it was a two-part series, and so we're flowing right into the second part. And so I want to jump into it right now. If you want to listen to part two, Uh, If you want to read Part 2, rather, you can get that article, this podcast, you can get the article for this podcast on our website, rickthomas.net, and it is titled, Investigating Legalism, Where in the World is Worldliness? And so that's the two-part series. Part number one, legalism is a fear-based culture that leads to a complex life. There are over 2,000 words there in that article. There are about, well, well over 2,000 in this one here. There are close to, I would say, 4,500 words in this entire series. And so it would make a nice little booklet for you. It would make an excellent study. There's also a video. There's some graphics. And there are a half a dozen other articles that you can read. So there's a lot of information here on this idea of legalism. Again, the first one, legalism is a fear-based culture that leads to a complex life. This one is titled, Investigating Legalism, Where in the World is Worldliness? And so that's my question. Where in the world is worldliness? Now, how you answer this question will determine how you live out your Christian experience in God's world. This is one of those watershed questions that will send you in one direction or some direction that is entirely different. Your system of Christian practice flows from how you answer my question. How you evangelize, how you interact with your culture, how you lead your spouse, how you parent your kids, how you pray to God, read your Bible, confess your sins, and relate to your local church or some of the things affected by your understanding of worldliness. In the last podcast and article, I talked about this Gnostic worldview that has come into some Christian think. You see, the Gnostics believe that worldliness was in the world. The legalist has a similar perspective. They both, the legalist and the Gnostic, they see the world as evil and internal spiritual things as good. Now, this understanding is why they both, the Gnostics and the legalists, separate from the culture and encourage others to do similarly. That's why I said where you land on this question of worldliness or badness or evil, it will affect how you evangelize, interact with your culture, lead your spouse, parent your children— Pray to God, read your Bible, confess your sins, and relate to your local church, and many more things. It is a watershed question. I used to think that worldliness was in the world, too. And the logical outworking of my belief system and practice was to draw lines between me and my culture. There was a big wall between me and my culture. I became a separatist. From all of those who were not like me. I did not learn these things from my observations of Jesus. It was my Christian teachers that taught me how to live the life of a legalist. They told me about this contrived doctrine of separation, and I put that in quotation marks. And even though Jesus contextualized, he embedded himself in his culture, my mentors motivated me to live differently from Jesus by separating from those who were not like me. Holding tenaciously to this worldview created problems because I attempted to live in my world as I separated from them, integrated with them and judged them, from my self righteous pedestal. And so I was in the world, separated from the world. I was integrated with them. Obviously, I judged them from my self righteous pedestal. It was kind of like I was a pedestal inside of my world, looking down on them, judging them. It was not only an awkward relationship, but it was a joyous Christian experience. You see, rule keepers can't be joyful unless they are just oblivious to how out of step they are to God's word. Christians are supposed to separate from the world. But the first question to ask is, where is the worldliness according to God's word from which they are separating? I used to draw the line between me and my culture because I believed that worldliness was out there. In the community. Today, I draw the line in another place. I see that worldliness is in my heart, which is where John and James located evil. Worldliness. Listen to 1 John 2, 14 and 15. John said, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he's about to describe what is in the world that we should not love. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you notice where or how John described worldliness as desires and pride? James said it another way in chapter 1, 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see what James is saying? Each person is tempted not by the alcohol, But by your desire for alcohol, not for the sexual thing out there, but your desire for that thing, James and John are locating evil, worldliness in our hearts, desires, lust, pride, are born in and flow out of our sinful hearts. James and John placed worldliness inside an individual. John tells us not to love the world or the things in the world, and then he describes what is in the world, but talking about pride, lust, desires, which are in sinful heart attitudes. John is not teaching me to draw a line between myself and the culture in which I live. My primary problem is not where I go, what I wear, who I hang with, what I say— or the things that I eat and drink. Besides missing the mark on where the sin is, if I draw the line between the community and me, I will alienate myself from them, which will keep me from sharing Jesus with them. Christ came to penetrate the world, not to create hedges and barriers between Him and the unsaved. I praise God that he did not separate from me since I was one of those sinners that he needed to reach. You see, this biblical perspective on worldliness, it still leaves the question about styles and preferences and interactions. What should I wear? Who should be my friends? Does modesty matter? What about cultural venues? Are you saying it's okay to get drunk? May I watch anything? All of these questions are excellent, and you must know how to answer them biblically. I do have an infographic here that I would encourage you to look at. It is my artist conception of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I'll not walk through that infographic in this podcast, but it's here visually for you to take a look at because it is important. So part of the answer to all of those questions that I was just asking what should I wear? Who should be my friends? Does modesty matter? What about cultural venues? Is it okay to get drunk? May I watch anything? Part of my answer here is I I care. What others think I must care what others think because I am my brother's keeper the Bible is clear which is the point that Paul was making in first Corinthians chapter 8 the entire chapter all 13 verses if there is a weaker brother that is easily offended by things that the Bible permits like drinking alcohol or eating meat offered to idols or watching television, or a lady wearing pants, the mature Christian should be careful by refraining from those things. But here's the caveat, but within reason. The weak Christians in Paul's day thought it was a sin to eat meat, previously sacrificed meat, sacrificed to idols, Paul knew their externalism, their legalism of meat-eating was not a sin. It's okay to eat the Happy Meal. It really is. And he knew it was okay, much like going to a movie theater is not a sin. But Paul warned those Christians who knew their external meat-eating was not a big deal. Just get over it. No, Paul said, no, don't have that kind of attitude You should be careful not to flaunt, which is a nice way of saying don't be arrogant. Don't flaunt your accurate biblical knowledge in front of those who had weak, fearful consciences. And an inaccurate biblical understanding, a correct biblical understanding regarding a practice can lead to pride and arrogance in how you live out your preference. Paul cautioned his friends not to do those things. If someone has taught you, let me illustrate this for you of why we want to be careful of flaunting, not flaunting. If someone has taught you all your life that something is a sin, when in reality it is not wrong, the Christian who knows better needs to practice love around that individual because he believes, he sincerely, genuinely, authentically (laughs) believes it is sinful. The issue in view here is more about loving a weaker Christian brother than living in the freedom of practicing your preference. I am free to attend a movie theater, but I am aware that it can be a stumbling block for a weaker brother who has been trained by religious, quote, put this in in quotation marks, religious authorities, that it is a sin to practice such things. It is critical that you understand that I am not drawing a line between the theater and me because that is not a sin to me. I am not separating from my culture. The sin would be if I proudly flaunt my freedom before my weaker brother. John and James do not place worldliness in the world, but inside a person's heart. Paul agrees It. It. it isn't the meat but it is the heart of an individual that matters most. Self-righteousness can tempt one believer to think he's better than the weak believer. Now here's an ironic twist to this idea. The weaker believer can succumb to a similar temptation of self-righteousness as he thinks he's better because he does not attend movies. Legalists can be extremely self-righteous people. And by the way, the grace crowd, those who react to legalism can be super hyper self-righteous as well. One believer is self-righteous because he's free to do his preference. The other believer is self-righteous because he's not free, but he judges the believer who does it. So my first point here. And all of those questions that I was asking, what should I wear? Who should be my friends? Does modesty matter, Etc. cetera? My first point here, I care what others think. I don't want to be a stumbling block. My second point here, I'm not controlled by what others think. Now, as you can feel, there is a tension here, which means the overarching idea or attitude must be humility and wisdom. You do care what others think, but, contiguous to that thought, you're not controlled by what others think. The question then becomes, if I must be concerned for all the weaker Christians in my life, I'm in a self-incarcerated prison of asceticism. Now, the logic seems to say that I must isolate myself from everyone and everything because there is seemingly no end to what a Christian may interpret as sin. Now that's a fair response. That is where you, you, you need to consider this notion. Of course, it's an immature response. It is impossible. It's not even reasonable or biblical. To isolate from a community, whether those individuals are saved, weaker Christians, or lost people. No, Christ. Penetrated his world. Penetration is the heart of the gospel, exporting the gospel to anyone, including a gospel-centered life to Christians who are incarcerated by their own legalistic preferences. Jesus embedded himself in his culture. It is not possible for you to guard against every possibility of offense. That just can't happen. And if you try to guard against offending every person in the world, uh, you will be one frustrated, dysfunctional human being. Jesus was not able to keep from offending people. One could say that God is an offense, as Paul implied in 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 15, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Just because the world struggles with God, it doesn't mean that he must isolate himself from them, the weak ones. No, God was a stumbling block, and God is a stumbling block. People didn't like the way the Lord operated, but he pursued the offended, hoping to reconcile with them. Did God change his practices? No, he didn't change his practices. He didn't compromise on his beliefs. So while he cares what others think, he's not controlled by what others think. And some of those weak ones did transform, like me, maybe you, if you are a believer. You see, the mat- ma- the mature Christian has enough self-awareness to know that he will offend some folks. And he knows his job is to help weaker brothers and sisters with grace and humility, serving them while hoping the Lord would free them from personal offenses that releases them to enjoy the things that the Bible does not prohibit. And so you want to separate from your culture, and you want to embed yourself in your culture. The meat eaters in Paul's day were in real bondage, which is why he warned about flaunting your freedom. The fear is strong for those meat eaters. It is. I can tell you exactly where I was the first time I wore blue jeans to a church meeting Now, don't laugh. In my old way of legalistic thinking, wearing jeans to a church meeting was sin. Only the pagans would dress like that and go to a church meeting. And the first time that I wore blue jeans on a Sunday night to a church meeting, I didn't go on Sunday morning because I knew God would strike me dead. And so I waited till Sunday night because that wasn't as bad. But I felt as though I was sinning. At the same time of feeling exhilaration in my soul, it was a strange juxtaposition of emotions. My fundamentalist system had taught me all my Christian life that it was a sin if you did not wear, quote, church clothes to a church meeting. And guess what? Jeans are not church clothes. The line of reasoning is that if you're going before the Lord, you dress up for the occasion now, of course, I was aware that I could come before the Lord in my pajamas. That's the complexity of legalism. is so inconsistent. Jesus had the remarkable ability not to draw attention to himself, but how he was so much like his culture. But when it came to points that mattered, he distinguished himself from his culture. But the way he dressed was not what identified him. It's not about the jeans. If you want to wear a suit to a church meeting, be free. Wear that suit. If you want to wear blue jeans and a t-shirt to a church meeting, be free. Wear your jeans and your t-shirt. Christ was free to look like everyone else because that was not the place to draw the line. He also didn't draw attention to himself by where he went. Those are the two ditches. So in these ways, he was not a separatist in one ditch. He mingled with his culture. He loved the people, and it was apparent. He went where they went. He ate where they ate. He participated in what they did. He was an embedded Christian. But the other ditch is that he didn't compromise biblical truths. He did distinguish himself as different from his culture in the critical areas that mattered. This is where Jesus drew the line. This is where Jesus was different from the culture, even though he embedded himself inside the culture. For example, Jesus was a servant to everyone, the lost and the saved because he did not come to earth for others to serve him. He didn't care if folks were offended when it came to serving people. He served the mixed-race Samaritan. He would allow the trashy, down-and-out woman to wipe his feet with her tears and hair. He would help the super-spiritual, overly-proud Nicodemus and he would draw a line in the sand between the lewd, the adulteress, and the legalist, those on the other side of the line. If you distinguish yourself by serving your culture rather than isolating from your sphere of influence, you are behaving like Jesus. If you differentiate yourself by loving your wife through serving her, you are acting like Jesus. If you distinguish yourself by modeling biblical manhood to your children, you are being like Jesus. You are, you are embedding in your culture, whether it's your marriage, your family, or those within your sphere of influence. The opportunities for impacting your culture for Christ are wonderfully staggering. You see, being immodest or overmodest can have the same effect. You're drawing attention to yourself. If your behaviors capture the gazes of others, rather than reflect the Christ whom you serve, you need to rethink why you dress the way you do. This perspective is what the Pharisees were doing. They were drawing attention to their religious garb and their religious asceticism which was merely a desire for the approval of men rather than receiving God's pleasure. And this is what John called worldliness. They were proud men craving approval and applause. That is worldliness. John placed worldliness in our hearts, not in our clothes. It is better to be culturally relevant and modest than wear clothes that draw attention to your religiousness. I have never looked at an immodest woman and thought about God. And alternatively, I have never looked at an overmodest woman and thought about God. In both cases, I thought about the way the person dressed. It was either seductive on one hand or, quite frankly, Odd, on the other hand, but ultimately it was the person that I was thinking about, and not God. Jesus chose a blend with his culture approach, unless it came to serving his culture for the glory of his Father, which is how he set himself apart. Jesus was culturally relevant. He was modest. He was courageous. He was embedded. You can be relevant and reach your culture without caving to the immodesty of your community or the overmodesty of religious traditionalism. The key is to guard your heart against the temptation of thinking that the external is sinful. It is the heart that you must safeguard. It is sinful lust, sinful desires, pride that will make you worldly. As you examine your heart and engage your culture, you're attacking any potential worldliness that seeks to lure you away from God. This is a two-part series on worldliness, the first article, and the podcast, Legalism is a Fear-Based Culture that Leads to a Complex Life. I would encourage you to read the article if you wish or listen to that podcast. And then this article and podcast is titled, Investigating Legalism, Where in the World is Worldliness? I want to finish this series by sharing with you a quote from the late R.C. Sproul on legalism from his book called The Holiness of God. I'll just read it as is. R.C. Sproul on legalism said this. It is a tragedy that Christians have treated the matter of non-conformative, a nonconformity at a shallow level. The simplistic way of not conforming is to see what is in style in our culture and then do the opposite. If short hair is in vogue, the nonconformist wears long hair. If going to the movies is popular, Christians avoid movies as worldly The extreme case of this may be seen in groups that refuse to wear buttons or use electricity because such things, too, are worldly. A superficial style of nonconformity is the classical Pharisaical trap. The kingdom of God is not about buttons and movies or dancing. The concern of God is not focused on what we eat or what we drink. The call of nonconformity is a call to a deeper level of righteousness that goes beyond externals. When piety is defined exclusively in terms of externals, the whole point of the Apostle's teaching has been lost. Somehow, we have failed to hear Jesus' words that it is not what goes into a person's mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of that mouth. We still want to make the kingdom a matter of eating and drinking. Why are such distortions rampant in Christian circles? The only answer I can give is sin." Our marks of piety can actually be evidences of impiety. When we major in minors and blow insignificant trifles out of proportion, we imitate the Pharisees. When we make dancing and movies the test of spirituality, we are guilty of substituting a cheap morality for a genuine one. We do these things to obscure the deeper issues of righteousness. Anyone can avoid dancing or going to movies. These require no great effort or moral courage. What is difficult is to control the tongue, to act with integrity, to reveal the, ref- the fruit of the Spirit. That is R.C. Sproul from his book, The Holiness of God, pages 161 and 162. And this is Rick Thomas, a two-part series on legalism. I would encourage you to read the 10,000-plus words that are here with all the articles that are linked, the video, the graphics. If you have any questions that you would like to ask me and our team, I would encourage you to do that. It would be our joy to serve you.